How many words are there for anger? How many words are there for happiness? How do you know which one's which? And just helping people get comfortable enough with their feelings that they're no longer terrified of them. That's something we really work on because when you can treat your emotions like rubber band and turn them up and down and make them go in different directions, they no longer run your life. Welcome to the My Future Business Show, where we get you in front of your best audience and keep you there. Not only are we interviewing the biggest names in business to help you become even more successful, we're inviting you to book your spot on the show to help you grow your business. So at the end of the call, make sure you fill in the interview application form at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. Hello and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. Today we are going to have a great deal of fun because I'm on the line with somebody who uh, has just made me laugh straight out of the gate. I'm on the line with the wonderful Elizabeth Power. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. It's an honor to be with you today. Yeah, now look, uh, Elizabeth and I were talking just briefly, of course, about uh, her background and where she is and what she does for her local community. And I think it's a wonderful tribute to her um, because the, the fact of the matter is that there are people around us, Elizabeth, that are not so fortunate or as well positioned as we are, are they? Absolutely not. And you don't have to be terribly well positioned to help someone else out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Goodwill gestures are free, they say. Goodwill gestures are free. And my mother taught me that you can always catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Oh, wow. I thought I was the only one who used that. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, are you you from Appalachia too? <laughs> I, I, I think, Elizabeth, for context, what, what I'll share with the audience is that uh, you are an international best selling author. You are a speaker, a facilitator, and a coach. And we are going to take a deep dive uh, into your book, um, Healer Reducing Crisis. But before we do any of that, Elizabeth, I'd love to learn more about you, um, starting off by where you're located. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that with your, the audience? Not at, not at all. To go from my, uh, my posterior is firmly planted in an ancient Herman Miller Aeron chair in the office in my home in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> I told everybody that it was going to be a fun call and there you go. You just got your first taste. <laughs> So what? Um, not being, not having been there myself, and I'm sure many in the uh, the audience who are listening, what is a, a landmark around you that uh, either you know or um, people would know? The Grand Old Opry, right? Um, is one one landmark nearby. Um, Nashville is also the home to over seven institutions of higher education, and we have been called the Athens of the South for a long time. Part of what we've done is that um, we've built a life-size replica of the Parthenon. Oh, wow. So so that we have have fabulous large art, and we also have all of these learned institutions, plus we've got country music. And there's also a very vibrant music industry in other genres as well. Um, and those would be probably the two things people might know the most, but country music would be the biggest one. Thank you for sharing. Have you always lived there? I, have I always been here? Mm-hmm. No, I started out in Western North Carolina. I started out way up in the hills. Oh, a long way away. <laughs> yes, I, I'm a person of Appalachian origin. That means I'm a hillbilly. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Wonderful to know. Now, I, I always like to, you know, dig up some history and, and talk about your childhood experiences. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a fond pet lover. Did you ever have uh-huh. any pets? And if you did, do you, remi- do you remember one 
more than oh more, lord more yes we had we had this we were always bad just to take up with whatever dog came trotting through the yard or whatever <laughs> cat came trotting through the yard you know and there was this coon hound do you know what a coon hound is i'm about to find out well, it's basically a large, lanky dog, very long-legged, so it can clear brush easily, runs fast, has a big, loud, baying bark, and they're used to hunt raccoons. All right. And this dog came ambling up into the yard, and bless its heart, hounds often do not walk straight. If you've ever seen a truck or a ute that has a bent frame, and it looks like it's going on the diagonal when it's going straight <laughs> down the road... Yep. <laughs> we we call that Sigodlin, S-I-G-O-D-L-I-N-G, but you always leave the G off. This dog walked Sigodlin, so of course when it turned around and came back, it was going anti-Sigodlin. <laughs> it was the funniest dog I have ever seen in my life. Uh, and I think they, you know, they have an, a, an impact on our life overall, don't they, pets? They do. Yeah, they they're, do. they're wonderful they creatures. They now, um, but the other... The other pet you really want to know about was the familial black snake who lived in the yard. Now, oh. you all have such an amazing variety of snakes in Australia, most of which are deadly. Would you like some? This was <laughs> uh, no, thank you, no, thank you. Pass. <laughs> this guy was not a deadly snake. He was a um, he was he was a ratter. He hunted rats and mice and things. He but did he a was good as job. big around as he did a great job, and and he was very protective of my sister and I. So that if there were people that he didn't like, he would wrap his tail around a tree limb and hang down and look and just look at them straight really? in the eye and they took off the other way. It was so funny. <laughs> You've just shared a couple of stories from your childhood, you know, with, with your pets. Um, do you have one particular memory of your, your childhood that really stands out for you that you could share with us? Oh, Lordy. Yeah, I do. Um, I was quite the speller in my childhood, not as in casting spells, but it's in spelling words. <laughs> And I won the county spelling contest, and I went to the state spelling contest. And this is one of those moments of humiliation that really helped me have some good comeuppance that I think I probably needed. Um, it was televised, and this would have been in the probably 1967 or 8. And I have joints that dislocate, so I can sneeze and throw body parts around <laughs> the room. And I was coming off the stage, and one of my knees dislocated. So not only was I in humiliation about missing the K in picnicking, <laughs> I had the humiliation of tumbling to the ground, shrieking in pain oh, on goodness. camera. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've gotten a lot less embarrassed about a lot of things since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, some other things now. In terms of um, sure. your field of work, this is a very important field of work, and you are so bubbly and vibrant. And I always wonder about people who work in the field of trauma and, you know, how important it is for them to have, I guess, a good attitude towards life. Would you mind talking oh, about that? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It is a constant requirement to keep managing one's resilience and to look for the positive things. And I have to tell you, you wouldn't have liked me very much in the 1970s or early 80s, maybe not until the mid-90s, <laughs> because I was not bubbly. I was... I was like a 55-gallon barrel of really ucky stuff. Yeah. You know, we, we have a phrase for it, but I'm going to be nice. <laughs> oh, I'd, love and, to, uh, I'd love to, if we could, um, wind back to the moment 
I guess the the intersection of experience, your life's experience, mm. to the moment that you said to yourself, "I want to get involved in this field," and if you could talk a little bit about what that field is and why. Sure, I think I think it's a um, a journey that's as for many has been evolving for me. I remember the time in my life after having devoted so much of my time to being miserable and unhappy and having all kinds of drama all the time and really wearing the things that had happened to me and the physical challenges I faced like a badge. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know people like that. I was actually going to, I used to relace ball gloves, softball and baseball gloves for a living in the summertime. And I was quite good at it. Um, And I got a call from a state office to go downtown and repair somebody's glove and so I showed up looking just as wretchedly awful as I could muster. I mean, I was really practicing being hard. ugly back then. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it was not a pretty sight. I had on a T-shirt and I had on shorts. And I probably had not a stitch on underneath. And I, Lord knows when I'd taken a bath or done anything. I mean, I really was working hard at pushing everybody away. <laughs> and gentlemen who were in the on the third floor of the building I was going to were out of the window catcalling me. My first instinct was to give them the single-fingered salute with both hands. Of course. (laughs) And I thought, no, it will baffle them more if I give them a beauty queen wave. Uh And I did, and they turned around and left. And it was the first time in my life that I was really conscious of the power that I might have. Yeah. It was really funny. And I think about five or six months later... I woke up one morning and I thought, you know, no matter what my parents told me, my mother was widowed quite young, but no matter what I heard growing up about what I could do, what I took in was that I was going to be a failure. I would never amount to anything. And I'd be lucky if I wasn't dead by the time I was 18 because I was a wild child. Yeah, it's a very common thing, isn't it? To be told you're not going to be much. And, and even when your parents don't say it, sometimes you still take it in. You feel it. You feel it. And so it was funny. I woke up sitting up, bolt upright in the bed. And I thought, oh, my goodness. If I'm supposed to be a failure and I am barely making it, I was then repairing shoes for a living mm-hmm. in Nashville, Tennessee. If I'm supposed to be a failure and I am succeeding at being a failure, I have to turn this around because in order to fail, I have to become successful. It was an inverted double bind and it changed my life because I began to recognize that the moment that I could become successful on my own terms, I would be living into failure to the messages I'd received and taken in in my life. Yeah, we have a lot of influence through our early years, don't we, from mm-hmm. our parents, oh, we do. parents and circles of friends and colleagues. Now, mm-hmm. um, I want to talk a little bit about that, but before we do, um, nowadays, when you take time away from doing the work that you do, what are the, some of the things that you actually do to unwind from that sort of environment? I, I garden a lot, and, and I, I, um, I travel when traveling is possible. I have friends who own the edge, a chunk of the edge of an island in Vancouver, Canada, up Beautiful. way north of Vancouver. And we go up. It's about a nine-hour trip from their home, and the last 45 minutes is across open water in small craft. And I go there with them when I'm invited. There's no electricity. There's no running water. It's fairly primitive. There is a house. Um, and just to spend time 
in nature without anything or anyone. There's a raven that comes and cackles to me and talks to me all day. I'm so sorry. Um, and it's more common than you there's think. There's a raven. Yeah, there's a raven that comes talk to me. It was probably just calling on the phone. Um, <laughs> and so that kind of uh, it, when people say, "Are you an iguana or are you a salamander?" in terms of do you like the hot or the cold? I'm a salamander. I like cool air. I yes. like the cool, moist air of yep. the mountains and the water. <laughs> and I write. I write a lot. And when I'm taking time for me, I'm writing trashy, not raunchy, southern fiction. Yep. yep. Which hasn't been published yet. <laughs> and, and that's therapeutic for you? It's very therapeutic. Plus, I love to cook. Yep. And so I will, I, there's a saying amongst the people I know here in Nashville, um, and they say, if you need food, go there. And it's because I say to people, you need to text me if you're hungry. I don't care if you're drunk downtown and just need not to drive. I don't care if you're on the way home from the airport, live close to the airport. You just text me 24-7 and say, is the kitchen open? And 20 minutes later, there will be something. I don't care if it's pork and beans and saltine crackers. There'll be food on the table. There'll be something. Yes. There'll be something. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love it. I wish there were yeah. more people like yeah. you. That's for sure and certain. Now, um, in terms of writing and putting pen to paper, um, we, I know that you love doing it. I, I wonder mm -hmm. what the genesis for the book was. Where, uh, oh, Lordy. I've been teaching people about trauma and trauma-informed care and dissociation and PTSD and all the things that come with trauma mm -hmm. more than 20 years now. Um, and I realized that the, a lot of the angst that we all feel after difficult things happen, we have medicalized so much of the natural misery of life that normal is just about in something the size of a beer can maybe even maybe even just a lid off a off a off a tall boy um and i got to thinking especially based on my own experiences because i assure you i have put several therapists children through college in my earlier years and working really hard to get where i've come to mm -hmm. um but i thought to myself how much of what we're dealing with are things that people could learn because it doesn't require a diagnosis to learn and as I began to do the work I was doing and kept teaching and began to talk about some of the ideas and some of the work that, that we're now seeing in terms of um, helping people move beyond some of the difficulties they have, it occurred to me that the skills and social-emotional learning, which in the States is helping children learn things that in some situations or in many situations they might have learned at home, the skills in emotional intelligence and the skills for moving beyond trauma are all the same. And so I surveyed about 4,000 therapists online and I said, look, if, if these skills, how would it help you if your clients had higher levels of self-awareness, self-regulation, social awareness, relationship skills, empathy and decision making? And to a person, it would be, the, the response was, it would be really helpful. It would be really helpful. And so I thought, well, let me see what I can do. And so I began to think about what is it that I know that's not being represented in the literature? Yeah. What is it that people need to hear that I have to say? 
And that's where I got the idea for the Trauma-Informed Academy to look at, you know, I mean, I know how trauma impacts people. I've been teaching it. I teach psychiatry at Georgetown University Medical Center part-time. Yes. I teach trauma-informed medical care. You know, it's not like I don't know this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's out there in the literature. What would it take for me to go beyond and talk about the issues of power and stigma and the history of mental health care and how we can look at doing the simple things to help us manage our feelings better? And so I looked back on my own experience and I looked back on the work I've been doing and I created a construct that allowed me to begin writing this series. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I wonder, uh, Elizabeth, um, you talked about um, medicalizing, for lack of a better way to, to say it, yeah. um, the experience of suffering almost. Uh, right, is, yes. is, should we be um, more robust in, as we go through these experiences and, exp- and take them on board as just a natural part that will pass of life? I believe we probably should, but here's the thing, Rick. A lot of people do not get, don't learn the skills for doing that at home anymore. Right. If, if my, if my, you know, I mean, and, and where I come from, we wear flat faces. We don't show our feelings. Yeah. And that's because, as it would be perhaps for um, indigenous people or Aboriginal people or people who are not from there, if I show you my feelings, you might use that information against me. Yeah. And if you think about Asian communities, um, the Asian, not now, not talking. I'm talking about the. Um, Chinese and Japanese and Korean community in and Vietnamese communities in particular. Understood. It's talking about they talk about living behind the face. Yeah. So that the face that you show is the face that people can accept and be comfortable with, no matter what you're feeling. And there are elaborate rituals and, and circumstances under which you may show your feelings. Okay, that's good. If your environment in a culture that is not living behind the face is emotionally safe enough that you can share your feelings and if your parents can help you learn to be sturdy enough to tolerate the natural discomforts of life that come from death and birth and illness and accident, you probably won't need as much or perhaps any counseling and therapy. But here's the challenge. In any circumstance where there is an economic stream attached to a particular process, that process has to increase its market share. Yeah. I don't care what it is. Yeah. And so it benefits the medical community that makes its living on this suffering to keep coming up with more and more diagnoses. Yeah. I mean, for heaven's sakes, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, whatever it is, if you grieve more than six months, it can be diagnosed as a mental illness. Seriously? If your parents have died, you know, or if a loved one has died, you know that while grief abates over six months, it's with you a long time. Why should that be a mental illness? Why shouldn't that be a normal process that we help each other with? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and if, I think about something like ADHD, for example. When I was growing mm-hmm. up, I, there was never even such a definition. Mm-hmm. Is, this what, mm-hmm. is this an example of what you're talking about? It is, because if you take children who have ADHD or even children who have gone to the point of developing what's called a reactive, um, a reactive attachment disorder, RED, mm-hmm. um, those children, when, you, when the parents are taught how to spend 15 minutes a day with that one child in one spot, the same spot at the same time every day, there's your consistency and there's your undivided attention 
from an adult who's acting like an adult, often those symptoms disappear. Yes. But it, let me point out some of the contributing factors that make ADD and ADHD such, such popular diagnoses. When you look at television, and television drives attention span, I, you know, whatever people like to watch is what they like to watch. But you can go back to Sesame Street and see how Sesame Street studied children to find out how long they could pay attention. And all of their programming set its, was set to that particular length followed by an ad. The average attention span in classrooms now is under 15 minutes. It's not much. That means that educators need to change something every 15 minutes. Educational lessons don't do that. Children, most in many places, grow up watching TV, engaging in a lot of media, spending a lot of time on tablets, tablets, computers, and, and mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And they don't learn to play and get all of their energy out outside. And they, they don't really learn how to attend for longer periods of time. Parents often have unrealistic expectations about what their children should be able to do when the children haven't learned how. And that bleeds over into the school system and the diagnostic process. Yeah, look, There's it, pretty good research about that. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a deep hole that we could go down, that's for sure. Mm. And certain. I, mm. I think about mm. media in particular, and I think about mm. uh, almost the daily bombardment of the current situation that we are experiencing globally together mm -hmm. as one big big family if you will and mm -hmm. I, I see the the questions i hear the questions coming out of my children about you know i'm worried i'm scared and is that a form of trauma the fear just from being well, exposed let's like that? talk about what trauma is and that will give you the answer yes absolutely anything that's so over anything i mean anything that so overwhelms a person no matter how short or how tall how young or how old mm -hmm. that they think that they are going to die lose their mind or be terribly injured bad physically is traumatic the brain processes it as something that is a threat to their life yeah yeah and so for children, it becomes this kind of circumstance, as for many of us adults, a long, low-level, kind of subtle traumatic influence, like a thumb that presses down on you and just doesn't let up. Of course your children are scared. Some of my friends have turned the telly off because they don't want their children to see those things. They want their children to have as much happiness as they can. Yeah, and it seems and, a lot of it comes back to the responsibility of the parents, wouldn't it? Right, but you know, I don't mean to be tacky. I haven't learned how to be an adult very well yet. Have you? <laughs> no, I'm I'm just a child in adults' clothes. We're all four-year-olds hiding behind big people masks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, and I think that's that's actually uh, quite an important point because once we come to recognise that, I think mm -hmm. that's the time at which things start to change. Would you agree? I believe you're absolutely right about that, and you know, and it's it's. Uh, you know, the parental styles, I mean, some families have family jokes that they play on children so that all the adults can laugh while the children are, are in, crying on the inside. Some families say to children, grow up and act your age, but they don't really know what it means. Yeah. And very few families have, I, do I really mean that? I think I do. I would say that probably 75% of families may just not have the skills because their parents couldn't pass them on. We didn't laugh in my family. It wasn't permitted because it was considered dangerous culturally. Wow, that's amazing. I think it's so healthy to laugh. Well, it is, and I had to learn how to do it. Well, you've got the but, hang you of know, it. 
<laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I always feel better when I have a good laugh. Now, Elizabeth, I'd love to talk a little bit about, if I could please, just change the direction slightly, sure. is to start talking about um, the book uh, in terms of what people are going to find inside because um, we talked about before um, trying to avoid this need for counselling and therapy. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how this is useful for someone who might be reading it. Oh, sure. And I'd like to say, first of all, that when I'm talking about avoiding the need for counselling and therapy, it's not to short the clinicians of their income or their career. It's because there are people who have really dire needs who can't get an appointment. Yeah, yeah. So it's really about increase, reducing the time and the trauma and costs of healing for everyone. What people will get out of this book is, is first of all, they'll, they'll understand a little bit, of, a lot more about these things that we call the self-capacities, which a fellow named Kohut named back in the 70s. They'll learn about elastic emotions, how to identify tips and tricks and tools about how to identify and regulate their feelings so that um, they're not always the feelings don't run our lives. Did you all have those invisible dogs on leashes in Australia? Oh, yes. We have them at the, what we call the Royal Adelaide Show. They sell them. So Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> okay, so, so the Aussies got it too. So if you think about it, a lot of times you're on the end of that leash and your invisible emotions are running you around. That's a great analogy. And this helps people put themselves on the back end and their emotions on the front end. There are lots of tools to help people think about that. Did you know you can even find a map of where people feel emotions in their body online now? I do now. I wasn't aware of that. And it's actually some research out of Finland that's been replicated with people from Taiwan and Finland. And it appears at this point, and notice there's a caveat there, that these are things are universal. It looks like a temperature chart. And if you go out and search for where do people feel emotions in their body, you'll find it. Just look for the images. That's one thing we're really on is helping people find vocabularies. I remember I taught, as I taught and still teach clinicians, and I'll say, how many feelings can you name? And they look at me like goldfish <laughs> with their mouths hanging open. <laughs> Um, and how many names, how many words are there for anger? You know, how many words are there for happiness? How do you know which one's which? And just helping people get comfortable enough with their feelings that they're no longer terrified of them. That's something we really work on because when you can treat your emotions like rubber band and turn them up and down and make them go in different directions, they no longer run your life. Yes, Absolutely. And then we also work on finding connections. And it's interesting, if you could read my mind, you would hear me thinking about the time I taught in Melbourne when I was in Sydney. Um, my, my, friend, um, my friends uh, who, Chelsea and, and Kingsley Old Meadow, who were here for nine months before COVID hit, who lived in my backyard and helping them get accustomed to being in the States. Yep. You know, we would find all of these things we have in common, all these memories that we might share that are our connections. And we have so many of these. We don't know about them. I mean, think about it. Have you got pictures of people you love on your cell phone? Yes. When you look at them, does it make you feel better? Yes. Okay. How about playlists? Do you have playlists? Yes. Do they make you feel better? Yes. What a concept. Do you have jewelry that somebody you love gave you? Yes. Does it make you feel better to look at it when you were in? Now, I'm not talking about the rock that you might have gotten in a D-I-V-O-R-C-E and you're proud to wear it because you got that SOB. Yeah, yeah, there there sometimes are oddly um, 
saddened um, memories that I associate with those types of things. Yes, people may but have you also on. have the positive ones. Of course. And the thing is, you can feel the sad ones, and you can also feel the positive ones, but we get stuck on the negative ones. Yeah. Because our brain is trying to keep us from repeating painful experiences. But with just a little bit of practice, you can identify all kinds of things that are these interconnections that you have to people or places or things or objects that you can use both to let yourself feel the sadness if you have sadness associated with them and to feel better. Yeah. So this is, uh, is this a consumption book like uh, cover to cover read or is it more of a guide that you go back to? Uh, both. both. I mean, people are telling me they're reading it cover to cover and people are telling me they're coming back to it, which is really interesting. The last thing I help people look at, which is probably, I think it's one of the really critical ones, is their secret strengths. If you've had a life with difficulty, you may not even be aware of the strengths it may have brought you. Yes. And you can't celebrate them or capitalize on them. This is about what's the favorite size? What is, what is the size of, of drink that you like? Is it a pint? Is it a quart? Is it 16 ounces? What size is your favorite drink, Rick? Um, well, in our metrics, uh, 500 mil, half a liter. Okay, great. So you're like a 500 mil half liter. Yep. If I bring you a two liter bottle to try and pour into that half liter, is it going to overflow? Of course. Okay. What we are is half liter containers and life pours two liters onto us. And unless we can expand ourselves to be closer to two liters, we're always going to be a hot mess. Oh yeah, I just something came up in my mind then. It's about um, use, it's the difference between the conscious and the subconscious mind. How we can only process mm -hmm. a small amount of thoughts actively, and yet we're on, mm -hmm. we are bombarded by the rest constantly. Is that is that part of this whole mechanism? It's a piece of it because when you expand your self capacities, your ability to look at your strengths, to have some interconnections, your subconscious mind isn't having to spend as much time protecting you. Yeah, fantastic. There's just so much to, to learn to take in here. I, I wonder, um, I, I know that people can get this book at Amazon and we're going to share all of those links and, and talk about your websites in a moment. But I want to talk about the trauma-informed academy that you set up as well as mm. your system. Can you talk to those for us? Sure. Um, a lot of what we've done is take the very dry courses. They're not all that dry, but they're intended for, uh, yeah, and then they're intended for consumption by anyone willing to learn. Yeah. But they don't have a lot of stories. They don't have a lot of examples. Um, we took the things that we know people need to be able to balance out the traditional medical model ideas around trauma and recovery. Yeah. And we constructed the Trauma Informed Academy to be able to house those short videos, um, online lessons, webinars, text, things of that sort. And in that, we discovered there was actually a system called the Trauma Responsive System that really looked at how do we pick these self-capacities up? What do we need to think about with regard to culture? Yeah. I know my culture. Mm -hmm. Why would I expect you to know my culture? I probably look like a lovely older white woman to you, but you would have no idea that the culture by which I live is based on Navajo and Hawaiian traditional indigenous values. Look beyond so the book cover. Oh, well, no, it's not on the book cover. No, no, no I said look, <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, look, look beyond the book cover because there's always more to it, isn't oh, I'm there? I'm sorry. 
Yes, it is. And what we teach is that clinicians have to become culturally competent, but that's a disservice to them. Yeah. We need to know our culture so that we can help them learn who we are if we need to see them. Yeah. Um, looking at open communication and how do we learn to communicate? What, what are some tips on communication? Um, looking at these elastic emotions, the interconnections, the secret strengths, the things that are really the core elements in increasing our emotional intelligence, which is where I like to start because emotional intelligence is correlated with better relationships, it's correlated with the better time at work, higher promotions, more pay, and it doesn't require a diagnosis and neither does learning. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, can I ask you, is there sure. a correlation between IQ and EQ? Um, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. I mean, I suppose you have to have enough IQ to be able to recognize some of these things. But even people with, you know, with, with lower IQs can still develop a self-awareness. Many of them can. Yep. Many of them can develop self-regulation skills. It may take longer. Special ed, people that we call special education students here, it just takes more trials to success. Yep, absolutely. And to have the, the resources around them, including your wonderful book and people like yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, you touched mm -hmm. on videos momentarily, and I've mm -hmm. watched um, your presentation that you've given on your um, website. I was inspired by it. It was so short but so punchy. It was a, it was a credit you. to you. It was amazing. Thank you. And uh, That's the work we yeah. do on change. Yeah, and um, when you speak with people, um, what are some of the topics that you normally will share? What do they ask you to talk uh about? Oh, people ask me to talk about coping with the human side of change. Right. Uh, there are so many change managers in business and corporate, it's not even funny, but we all forget what does it do to the people. Yeah. And if the people have a hard time, the organizational and the personal change won't go well. So we help people make sense of that, which is what you saw, mm -hmm. a very short bit of it. Mm -hmm. We talk about resilience because Lord knows we've got self-care going on at every level. You know, go get a manicure, go out and take a ride, go fishing, go make music. But what if you could amplify the benefit of that tenfold just by running it through a particular filter? And, and we use a research base to do that. So we help people jack up the benefit of their self-care. Yeah. They ask me to talk about coping with trauma. They want to know my personal story, including the diagnoses that I've dealt with and come through. And they want to know what qualifies you, in addition to just having a master's in education, to do what you do. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, I started out as a shoe repairer, and now I teach at a medical school. How did <laughs> I get from here to there, and what got in the way, and how did I use it? Being, actually, the first time I came to Australia, I taught at a conference for people who were working with folks with multiple personality disorder, which is what I was diagnosed with back in 90. Wow. Now, I, I look at this this whole experience and I think to myself, well, I'm, I'm now ready. I know that I have some challenges I'd love to get help with. Um, the obvious question next, uh, is Elizabeth, I'll get to that in a minute, is where are people going to go to um, find you and what is the process that you will take them through when they get there? Oh, it's so easy. They can, I'm, I'm so lucky to have my own name site. They can go to elizabethpower.com. Fantastic. And when they do, they'll see that they're, they can scroll, they can look through everything, and the Contact Us button allows them to learn more about the work that we do and to fill out their application and schedule a call to see if, if there's a fit for coaching. We have... Um, a, a, a contact us both for individuals and for organizations that we're working with so that people can take a look and see might this be a good fit they can see on that site 
different snippets of the work we do in each area. And that's, that's really the best place folks can find me. Fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing. Now, is that the, the is that what you're calling the readiness check? Is that what that is? Yes. Yes, okay. it is. All right. Yeah. Well, look, everybody's on the call today, uh, as is normal practice. I will be making sure that all of the links back to Elizabeth and her wonderful uh, processes and everything that she is doing with her book, uh, you can actually find that on Amazon. I'll describe it uh, in the post. No matter where you find this interview, you will find all of those links. And with all that being said, Elizabeth, this has just been a fantastic call. Thank you so very much for spending some time with me on the show today. Oh, thank you, Rick. I, I really have enjoyed it. And I, I, I wish you the best of everything in your work and let me know what I can do to continue to support you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the call, then make sure to subscribe, leave a comment, share us with your friends and book your spot on the show at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. And if you're looking for solutions that will help grow your business, then visit myfuturebusiness.com forward slash shop.